0: take first watch hello and welcome to an all-new episode of the first watch podcast we are back this week to discuss david cronenberg's crimes of the future cole how are you
1: I'm good. I'm living it up in beautiful, sunny Hollywood, California.
0: It's hitting like the upper 90s in Dallas right now (laughs) in the early part of summer.
1: It's been 75 here for the past two weeks.
0: Oh, wow. That's very nice. Well, I got, you know, I kind of, in terms of what we're here to talk about, I actually kind of like this part of the year because there's nothing better than going to see a movie on a hot summer day like Sunday, it's 93 degrees, you duck into that cold auditorium, they're playing Goodfellas, You're seeing Ray Liotta up on the big screen talking to Catherine Scorsese. This is it, right? Like, there's nothing better than that. And this is, you know, this is the season where everybody goes out and sees all the big movies because the studios sort of line everything up for everybody yeah. to go and see their, their big releases. Like, we got Jurassic Park coming out. I know that that you were showing me pictures of the premiere of that last night.
1: Yeah, they built like an entire jungle on Hollywood Boulevard. They had the arch. They had like a golden universal globe hanging over the TCL Chinese.
0: Just blasting John Williams into the streets. So what about you? Have you been seeing any new big summertime releases or small summertime releases?
1: There's been some smaller releases that I've caught up with lately. Um, One that I want to take a quick shout out to is... Hatching, which is a 2022 Finnish horror movie directed by Hannah Bergholm. It's about this perfect little family. They're like upper-class suburbanites. The mom is a family vlogger, you know, has a YouTube channel, all that stuff, you know, constantly advertising her two children and her husband. The house looks like it came out straight out of a Wayfair magazine. But one day in this house, a crow flies in through the window and causes a bit of a panic. And the daughter, Tinya, manages to catch the crow in a blanket and gives it to her mom, asking if she should take it outside. The mom snaps the bird's neck and tells her to dump it out in the trash. And Tinya is also a gymnast who is only doing that because her mom failed at doing it when she was little. In my review, I basically put every generation deserves its black swan. And this ah. is uh, the black swan of the 2020s. But what happens is when Tinya takes the crow out to get rid of it in the woods, she finds this little egg and she thinks that it's from the crow that just died. So she brings it in into her room and she hides it underneath her giant stuffed teddy bear. A couple of days later, the egg is just about as big as she is. And what hatches out is pretty gnarly. I'm going <laughs> to pause it right there. Not to give away any spoilers or surprises, but I found this to be a super effective, nasty little horror movie with some really great practical effects. But just really great effects, really engaging story about like this picture perfect family crumbling apart and the dynamics between a demanding, uh, narcissistic mother and a daughter who feels like she's losing that special connection that a mother and daughter should have.
0: So take note, if you're looking for gross horror movies with a basis in the emotional and psychological, skip men, watch hatching. That's the official first watch position of exactly. the summer.
1: The other big thing that I've seen recently, and so has every other single person in America, because this has made ungodly amounts of money. It's probably gonna end up being the highest grossing film in the summer when all is said and done. 600 million at the domestic box office is not out of the question, is Top Gun Maverick.
0: Kind of the surprise hit of the summer not surprise box office hit but just in terms of word of mouth the universal the level, of level of praise
1: the audience turnout is insane
0: the return um, of tom just- cruise after covid quarantine delays for mission impossible dead reckoning delays for this film has been met with fucking fervor
1: we are one nation under cruise with Liberty and giant pilot flights for all.
0: <laughs> did you see that in any kind of specialty format, like IMAX or Dolby?
1: I did. Um, I saw it in IMAX, actually at the theater where Jurassic World uh, premiered the other night. I think it's like a 950 seat auditorium. Completely full.
0: I think it's, I always end up saying this about big spectacle movies, I feel like but it's almost the best sounding movie of the year. I would recommend anybody that hasn't seen it, which doesn't sound like there are too many people left, (laughs) that it's just (laughs) like it has, like the box office has not dropped really at all all. for, for a blockbuster of that scale. Usually they taper off really heavily after that first week, but this has been holding strong with no real particular competition for this style of movie but also because as the word of mouth will tell you it just it really demands a theatrical experience for the sound for the size and for the audience reactions because the movie somewhat like the Macquarie, cruise mission impossible efforts is really dedicated to making it the biggest most exciting action movie experience that it can
1: watching this at home would feel wrong i mean just for the opening scene alone
0: the opening scene, actually, so I saw this about a week after it came out, completely full auditorium. <laughs> and I think like the opening scene is one of my favorite parts of it. It's like, it's not even really, you're not at the Top Gun yet. You yeah. meet up with an old Naverick who's testing some kind of sci-fi hypersonic scramjet that goes 10 times the speed of sound.
1: It's the perfect way to introduce this character again after 36 years, I believe.
0: It's, it's an interesting candidate for a legacy sequel. Tony Scott actually tried to get a sequel made for several years, I think. Yeah. And this is what remains of that project of that movie that never came to be. Obviously, it's a little bit tough to tell how much or how little was in Tony's mind, but this really feels like it is modeled on the other legacy sequels that we've seen, like mm-hmm. The Force Awakens, like Jurassic World, but I think written and particularly directed in a really intelligent way. Right after the opening scene, you get that tubular bell hit and the theme comes in. You get the Kenny Loggins flying into the danger zone. You know, it knows how to use those little bits to just, hey, this is where you are. You're watching Top Gun.
1: It knows how to ev- evoke a sense of nostalgia without being overly slavish to it, which is a mistake that so many legacy sequels make. I mean, a lot of legacy sequels basically just repeat the storyline of whatever the first film was. And in a way, this is pretty close to what the first story for Top Gun was.
0: It's a little bit different. I would almost compare it to The Force Awakens in that way, where it's the story just isn't that complicated. The original story of Top Gun isn't that complicated. It's just kind of contrived scenarios to film airplane stuff that's cool. And so is this. It's like Maverick is kind of done being a fighter pilot, maybe didn't get as far in his career as some of his contemporaries because he wants to keep flying. And then he winds up back at Top Gun where he has to coach Top Gun graduates on a mission that is perhaps not coincidentally quite Star Warsian.
1: It's blow up to Death Star from A New Hope.
0: Yeah, with, with like a couple twists and turns and new pieces to it. So the movie itself is quite simple. And one of the ways that it's simple is that everything that they do, they have like that core mission that Tom Cruise as Maverick is there to teach all these this younger generation of pilots how to run this trench run Death Star style course. And so the entire movie, you spend learning that course so that by the time you get to the film's close and they're doing it for real, you just know every step of it, you know, every little nook and cranny of what they have to do. And it's a really, I think, intelligent way to design the movie. Maybe I think it's a little bit disappointing because it feels like that simplicity of the set piece is matched by a really tactile approach where they're filming inside the real F-18 jets and everything is very physical and real. I think it's let down a little bit by the simplicity of the narrative. (laughs) I was sort of thinking about it like the set pieces are like this really simple, but great homemade biscuit recipe. It's, it's you know, there's nothing complex about it, but it just hits the spot. And then the narrative's a little bit like you took a packet of instant gravy, put it all over the homemade biscuits. <laughs> and maybe-
1: Although instant gravy can be pretty good.
0: I, you know, when you've got- <laughs> I think the cast of this movie is a really strong point. Obviously, we've got really Tom good. Cruise, John Ham's in the film, kind of doing the frustrated the, police chief, <laughs> turn yeah. in your badge, I'm grounding the, you.
1: The uh, the military asshole who provides the really interesting sort of sub-conflict going on because Maverick wants everybody to survive this mission where Ham's character, and by extension, the position of the Navy is that they don't really care if these people live or die.
0: Particularly what's happening is that Maverick, who is known for taking risks and doing dangerous stuff that relies on really expert ace piloting that most pilots that are the best cannot do, wants to run this trench run in a specific way at a specific speed that makes it much more dangerous, but then safer on egress when they're trying to escape And what the Navy wants to do is implement a more conservative version of the route, a more conservative time, which makes it safer and makes the mission more likely to succeed. But it makes the pilots kind of more expendable. Pilots in this movie, we've got Miles Teller, kind of the first Miles Teller that I've dug in a while, I will say. Very good.
1: very Attractive with that porn mustache.
0: He's got the porn mustache. (laughs) He's got the oiled abs playing beach football (laughs) with Glenn Powell of everybody. Glenn Powell, (laughs) he was like, he's my guy. He's just like, <laughs> I have to say like one of the things that I appreciate about this is that there is a real sense of, and I think this is pretty true with Top Gun too, the, the original Top Gun, they kind of get the culture right, they get the personalities of these people right, where they're very cocky and competitive, but they're also dutiful and obedient. And if you earn their respect, then you've got it forever. So when you have this maverick character who can do anything and everything in a plane these young buck best pilots in the world are all like oh wow this is the coolest guy ever
1: also really great but we haven't mentioned yet jennifer connelly yes plays penny the local bar owner who Cruz has a romantic relationship with
0: you know everybody knows that Cruz is looking good but like jennifer connelly is looking good there are things about the narrative that i dislike you know the, the narrative stuff is sort of this The opening set piece, he gets in trouble with Ed Harris because he's making reckless decisions and there's a consequence to that. For the remainder of the movie, every reckless decision that Maverick makes is correct. (laughs) And like (laughs) there's no real punishment. It gets him into scenarios at times you know there's a part of where he and miles teller playing the son of the late goose mavericks co-pilot wingman who passed away in the first film due to tragic uh, ejection seat related circumstances <laughs> have you seen the original top gun i have
1: the first time it was a long long time ago and then i rewatched yeah. it the weekend before this came out
0: yeah i'm not a very big fan i think there's things about it that i like but it's okay. I think that this this new movie is not only kind of better and more exciting, but it does more intelligent things with them. So one of the big central conflicts is that Maverick and Goose's son have this kind of fraught history because of the feelings that exist between them because of the father that is no longer there. And yeah. this manifests in a scene where they do like a double cobra roll. They're like fucking spinning around each other and flying so at the special. ground. <laughs> So fucking, it's it, like it's cool and then there's like you know john ham's like i don't ever want to see that again it's like yeah man i you're right <laughs> you should probably have shut that down
1: <laughs> i'm just like re-roll the tapes we gotta watch that again
0: seriously like it's such a fucking cool spectacle movie there's at least eight moments where you'll just be like whoa i can't believe they did that yeah there's a there's a particular I think really my favorite action y part of it is spoilers. There's a dogfight at the end of it, much like there is at the end of the original Top Gun. And just the entire dogfighting scene, the way that they set it up, which I won't spoil, like, there, what's going on, but it is exhilarating. And there's a particular moment where an enemy aircraft, like, evades their attack in a way that's just like every character on screen and every person in the auditorium is like, what the fuck just happened? Can right. he do that?
1: <laughs> right. Also, another part of this movie's simplicity that I also thought was really smart is that the enemy in this movie has no nationality. You don't even see their faces.
0: No. It's, so if you really dig into the weeds, it's probably Iran or Russia. But obviously, it cannot help but to a military movie. But it is not a war movie. It is conscientiously yes. not a war movie. It has no interest in unpacking that. It has that kind of baggage visually. It has that baggage in terms of like, you know, Maverick is a captain in the navy, he's flown missions. He's been to war. Yeah,
1: you know, there's American flags everywhere and all that.
0: But there's a reason why the mission in this is reminiscent of Star Wars, I think. And it's because they want you to be thinking about it like these are X-wings more than like their military planes.
1: Even the enemy pilots look like they should be flying a TIE fighter.
0: Yeah. They're, they're like in F-18. like all black helmets. They're yeah, like reflective. Like the-, the, one, the one thing that I would say, and it's just inescapable, is that this is a fucking a Lockheed Barton <laughs> commercial, I think is the case. <laughs> they're all Lockheed Barton planes. And what I mean by that is twofold. One, it's like they use the real F-14, the real F-18. The enemy planes are all Lockheed Barton planes that are like badged and the different. So there's that. It's just inevitable. Yeah. But then two, because of the way that the story is, it's stuff like frame is it meant to last through this many G's, but then it does really a big part of the conflict is that these planes that they're flying are like outdated and bad. And the planes that the enemies are flying are like way cooler and better. But then they're like beating the enemy planes with the fucking old planes. It's just, it yeah. gives the impression of watching like a Chevy Silverado commercial where it's like driving mm-hmm. up a volcano. It's the most exciting thing you can go see in a theater right now, probably.
1: One hundred percent, and that thoughtfulness also extends to what I would say is the best handling of any older character in the legacy sequel at this point, um, which mm. is the way they handle Val Kilmer's character. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, did you ever see that um, the documentary about him? I, I think it was just called Val. Yeah. I was curious in that documentary, they detail Val Kilmer's throat cancer, his recovery from throat cancer, and just, you know, the difficulty that he has speaking. And I was curious how they were going to handle that. And they handle it, I mean, totally maturely, totally gracefully. There's more power than you might think in watching aging Tom Cruise and aging Val Kilmer exchange hugs and lines with each other.
1: Yeah, for a second, I was like, wait, am I crying?
0: (laughs) (laughs) To a Top Gun sequel? (laughs) No, I, you know, one of the reasons I think that it handles those characters well is because I think the movie in some ways, it's just a little bit meta. It's just a little bit about the last great movie star making the last great action movie
1: it's all about how cruise is working for his place in hollywood he is maybe the last big action star he's getting up there the environment for action movies has moved beyond what he normally does although the response to this says possibly otherwise
0: i think there's an open question as to who's going to replace him it will have to be someone eventually but it wasn't val kilmer it doesn't seem like it's going to be Miles Teller. I would love if it was Glenn Powell, but it's probably not going to be Glenn Powell. You know, it's not John Hamm, even though John Hamm was on Mad Men and is a very successful, well-known actor. He's not replacing Tom Cruise. And I think that that meta element exists within this film, this kind of like, yeah. who's next? Who's going to show up and be the guy when this guy leaves? And that's sort of what the movie yeah. left me thinking about.
1: It's, it's all about trying to bridge the past with the future. I mean, even down to the choice of who they pick for the song at the end. The theme song for this movie, Hold My Hand, performed and written by Lady Gaga. And Gaga's entire thing in the past couple of years has been about not just being a pop star, but also being a connection to the past with her work with Tony Bennett and then presenting with Liza Minnelli at the Oscars. So even down to the song choice and who's performing it, it's all about that connection to what things used to be
0: like. To that end. Really fucking excited for Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning in theaters next year. Wait.
1: He drives a motorcycle off a cliff. Like hello.
0: <laughs> that trailer is breathtaking. I still haven't seen the Avatar to the Way of Water trailer, but that one is breathtaking. That's
1: if you played those trailers back to back in a
0: theater <laughs> I mean,
1: to be resuscitated.
0: So from one meditation on an aging artist to another, let's uh, go ahead and dive right into our. Kind of main conversation for the day which is the latest film from david cronenberg crimes of the future crimes of the future opening in the u.s just this last weekend it is like a really fast turnover from con where it had its debut it's uh, another collaboration between david cronenberg and vigo mortensen with whom he's made eastern promises history of violence dangerous method And it's a return to the body horror genre for which we all kind of know and love David Cronenberg. And also a return, I would say, to science fiction. Arguably, Cosmopolis is a science fiction movie. It's kind of a dystopian. But this is like a true proper return to like weirdo, David Cronenberg, science fiction. How would you describe the reception to this film so far?
1: We'll say mixed.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I I think mixed in a fairly predictable way. Let's say this. David Cronenberg, like a lot of older directors, not all, but a lot, had a period, some would start in the 70s, I'd start in the 80s, from like the 80s to the late 90s to the 2000s, where he's one of the best working Canadian directors, one of the best working North American directors, if you will. And then after that point, he continues to work, but maybe loses some of the bulk of his core audience. But what that leaves you with is a much more focused core audience that's really interested in the new digital cinematography techniques that he incorporates in his movies. A greater degree of thematic complexity, density. And this is reflected in movies like Cosmopolis. It's reflected in movies like Maps to the Stars. And I think that this is kind of of the same mold as those newer Cronenbergs, even though the genre is a throwback. He's using that genre to kind of continue to push forward what he's been doing as a filmmaker for the last decade plus. And I think that there are people that are really devoted to that idea. And Cole, I know you greatly enjoyed this movie, so why don't you go ahead and tell us what Crimes of the Future is?
1: Crimes of the Future takes place in a post-apocalyptic world where humans have begun to evolve and the main character, Saul, who's played by Vigo Mortensen, has accelerated evolutionary syndrome. He is constantly growing new organs and not just like a replacement for a kidney or a stomach or anything. These are brand new organs that have never been seen before in the human body, and no one knows the scientific reason for them. His partner, Caprice, played by Leah Sadu keeps track of all these new organs and they are performance artists. So what they do is they perform surgery for audiences. They perform removing these new organs for people to watch however because of whatever remains left of the global government is concerned about all these new organs and expanding human evolution they do have to register with the national organ registry so they have to contend with two basically sniveling bureaucrats one played by don mckellar and the other very memorably played by kristen stewart and okay so spoiler territory Uh, This movie's first 10 minutes involves this child who has somehow developed the ability to eat plastic and digest it like you and I would digest a burger or pasta or steak. The mom, who is completely horrified by this, kills the boy in his own sleep by smothering him with a pillow and tells his dad, her ex-husband, to come and pick him up. The father requests that Saul and Caprice perform an autopsy on the boy as public art. And from there, we go through a thorny moral quandary of performing an autopsy on a dead eight-year-old in front of a live audience as a message about the future of humanity.
0: So if all of that, to a listener, sounds like this movie is extremely densely plotted, it's not particularly. No. No. It- it sort of sounds like it is, because there's a lot on this movie's mind. There are a lot of topics that it's exploring. But it's all sort of done through the daily, I wouldn't quite call them mundane, because they are plot-driven tasks by Saul Tensor, the Vigo Mortensen character. But it's just kind of presented to you in a way where you're going through the world and encountering new conflicts that are at times intersectional, and at times entirely unrelated to the development of these sort of new neo-organs, as I think they call them, neo-organs, and yes. organs, novel organs, because it's sort of happening all over the place. Saul Tenser, who is the main character, is quite well known because of his art show and because of the sheer volume of organs that he has cultivated inside of his body, and then had cut out. And all throughout the movie, there are conflicts over this process happening. You have the conflict of the mother and the father and the kid, which is literally just sheer eternal resistance to this new thing. I don't accept that my child's body is freaky and Cronenbergy. Fuck this. I want to, I want to shout out the yeah. mom. The mom is played by Leahy Kornowski who gives my favorite performance of the movie, even though she's in two scenes. She's in that opening scene with the child, and then she's in a scene where Saul comes and interviews her to get more information about the child. And in both scenes, she just is like... (laughs) I don't
1: even know... Yeah, I did it, because that child's a freak.
0: She just has an energy to her that I find sort of refreshing. Like, it breaks the tension of this world, maybe because she so violently rejects the world, maybe because... I don't. It's just something about that character she's and her demeanor very is so.
1: 2022 compared to whatever century this is taking place in.
0: Where she's reacting to it very much the way that I would.
1: Yeah, like if your child just started eating a trash can, Situation. vomiting on it so that it melts.
0: I love the fly. So, like- <laughs> so that's that's one conflict. Is that. The mother is witnessing this thing happen with her husband, with her husband's freaky plastic eating friends, and with her freaky plastic eating child. Another conflict is the various agencies of the state who are trying to control, restrict, or at least understand what's happening here. Yeah. You've brought up the two bureaucrats at the Oregon registration. They're a little bit more neutral about everything. Yeah. You know, they are part of a government agency. They are bureaucratic. There's a certain level of negative connotation there. However with Timlin, the Kristen Stewart character, she's like sexually attracted to this.
1: She shit. is so she's horny. horny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so she has like an she has like a personal passion for the mutations that are going on. And it seems to me that like her government job is a means of her exploring that. Or the 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 male bureaucrat character whose name is Whippet, <laughs> I had to think about it. <laughs> for Whippet, He's oh. as we as we find out throughout the course of the plot, he's like hosting an internal beauty show, Beginner like which is pageant. I want to say that's a concept from Dead Ringers. <laughs> that's a line of one of the two twin characters. I always thought we should have beauty contest for people's insides.
1: <laughs> Guess what? Now we do.
0: So he's kind of stealthily also someone who has like a aesthetic. Passion for this evolution, even though he's working for this state agency that's trying to like register and control, God. there's a certain level of passion and knowledge behind the scenes. Another state agent that we see is the detective yeah. who is trying to like investigate the plastic eaters, basically, and his relationship with all this stuff is way more skeptical. There's a scene where he interviews the two bureaucrats, and he's skeptical of them, even though yeah. they're all kind of part of the government.
1: He thinks they're crazy.
0: He doesn't see the art thing. He's just, you know, trying to control deviancy. And then I think the final conflict is sort of in artists trying to, well, not just artists, it's artists and regular people trying to self-express through this change in themselves, either through the tensor performance art, which obviously there's a lot to talk about there, but there's also other performance art. They're like kind of in like our community of freaky mutants, such as the Ear Man, who features heavily in all the marketing. Really great bit with the Ear Man that he's just like not good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the best part about Ear Man, who has like 36 ears just stitched onto his body is that it's completely undercut by Saul and another woman talking about how much he
0: sucks. (laughs) Which I think it's kind of cool because you get to see in that art world, there are people that are expressing via their mutations. And then there's sort of more of like a body modification. There are people who are altering themselves, either like the plastic eaters are doing this too. Like they're cutting themselves open and rearranging their organs to be able to do what they're doing. Leia C. do at one point gets these like beads put in her forehead. So it's not just that we're looking at sort of like X-Men mutants and human evolution, but you're also looking at people trying to use these types of bodily modifications to express themselves. they're,
1: They're trying to show who they really are.
0: Involved in all of that, I think- I still want to come back around to Salt, Hensor, and Caprice because there's still a lot there. We're still going. This, just, this movie is like a thematically layered fucking it's, baklava. It's, like it's just layers a, of filo dough.
1: It's like a slice of life if a slice of life was also like the size of an encyclopedia.
0: And took place in a fairly fleshed out sci-fi world. The the final way is that have capitalism. So we've got kind of the agents of the state. We have like artists. We have people that are creatively and sexually expressing themselves and then finally, we have corporate interests. The human evolution parts of this movie, like a lot of Cronenberg science fiction, juxtaposes it with technological evolution. And this is there with like the plastic and the global warming and stuff. That's kind of one part of it. But then the other part of it is that Saul Tenser has these instruments all over his house. He has a chair that helps him eat breakfast, that wiggles him around while he eats. He's got a bed that detects...
1: It looks like a walnut
0: <laughs> he has a it, it <laughs> like detects where he feels pain and it's like connected to the ceiling with tentacles and then a big part of the movie is the sarcophagus thing that Leia Sedu yeah, does her surgeries part. with
1: i mean and, even that is like a mix of organic and mechanical because like the remote for it is like something that looks like a frog with a bunch <laughs> of colorful buttons on its back and she like I, holds it up to her chest and like presses against it
0: There's a lot of the movie that production design-wise reminds me of Naked Lunch. It's all mechanical, but it's designed to look organic. Like, his breakfast chair looks like it's made of bones. It looks like it's got teeth on it at the end of it. It looks like fucking Shin Godzilla's tail or something. It's horrifying. So there are these like technician characters. They're just little side characters that are in the movie that are fixing things up. But every time I saw them, I kind of thought about how part of what's happening in this world is just that everybody kind of wants their slice of these neo-organs. They want to figure out where they fit in the new world. Where does a cop fit in the new world? Where does a bureaucrat fit in the new world? Where does an artist fit in the new world? Where does business fit in the new world? Where do parents and children fit in the new world?
1: I mean, on every single level, everything's evolving. There's that line in the trailer that's pretty much become a running meme at this point that surgery is a new sex, but it comes down to that. In the film as well, the scene between Caprice and Saul when they perform the removal of an organ is very sexually charged. Tim Lin comes on to Saul in a very sexual way. And he even, I think he even says, I'm sorry, I'm not good at the old sex.
0: (laughs) That's sort of the final theme that I wanted to, to talk about. It's not really so much about all the conflict stuff. But to me, that was one of the more interesting elements because it seems like an exploration of an aging artist not really knowing where he fits in the world. He's an old man and his body's changing. And it's like, yeah, that's me too, man. I bet I know what David Cronenberg was thinking. It just feels very personal. In some ways, it feels like it's sort of talking about impotency and aging. He has this sort of throat ailment where he has to like massage food down his throat. All of the technology stuff feels like it is designed to mitigate or to eliminate pain. There's like one particular line of dialogue, I think, with it says it, where he's like, The world is a significantly more dangerous place now that human beings have basically eliminated pain, which they've done through their biology, they've done it through technology. And I think that that's sort of where the movie is coming through technology, through our behaviors, through our choices. We are perpetuating the next state of human evolution, whether it's good or not is up to your own personal interpretation. It's up to every character's own personal interpretation. Here's a portrait of what it looks like as the wheel slows. Burns.
1: The key thing about this is at the end is that they learn to accept these changes. It gets to a point where he can't deny these organs inside of him anymore.
0: So that's kind of wrapping back around to Saul and Caprice. Something that I was trying to get at a little bit with laying yeah. out these different conflicts is that the cop who is part of the state has a different perspective than the bureaucrats. The two bureaucrats have different perspectives than each other. Kristen Stewart's Timlin character, while aroused seems to be a little bit more straight-laced, a little bit less of a rule-breaker maybe, versus yeah. Whippet is like literally secretly running a fashion show. Yeah. And then, so so within that agency, you've got people with different perspectives. Within the relationship of Saul Tensor and Caprice, who are an artistic duo, they have their own angles. Saul has his interpretation of what his art means, which is that the trailer quote, I don't like what's happening with my body, that's why I keep cutting it open. He's making a statement about how like, this shit sucks. Get this away from me. I want to be normal. I want to be normal, which is a little bit weird. It wasn't really what I was expecting his character to be like. And Caprice is far more interested and enamored with the new organs, even though she takes them out because he would die if she didn't. She thinks she believes they're doing the same thing. They're part of the same show, but they have separate values and interpretations about human evolution and this body modification stuff. Because they're not the same person. And I think that's really interesting because it gets into the idea of how we might interpret this movie or any other movie. Because I think I know what Dead Ringers means, but he probably thinks something somewhat different. You know I mean? different. Because that's how everything in this world works. Kristen Stewart watches Crimes of the Future and is like, this is sexy. Lee Kornowski watches it and it's like, this is horrifying.
1: And then when I was watching it and like going through all these million different perspectives, especially about you know, how it's about an aging artist and how he's dealing with his own place in the world and slowly accepting it. In the back of my mind, I was constantly going, how nice and neon to release this during Pride Month. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) This is one of the gayest films in a long time.
0: Anytime that I see a movie that's like deviant sexuality, I can't help but associate it with weird culture to some extent, whether it's gay or not gay, because it's outside the bounds of what is socially acceptable or redefining the bounds of what is personally acceptable. It just gives it this charge of transgression. You know, we just did a whole fucking podcast about Noé. Way. Noé Way films tend to have a lot of homosexuality, in them, and they are coupled with all that transgression. It's just, it's a, it's a native fit. They go together like peanut butter and chocolate.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could even take Saul's rejection of his body as internalized homophobia up until that final moment. When he finally eats one of those plastic chocolate bars <laughs> and he can swallow and digest it. And he's just sitting there, face looking like uh, Marie Falconetti and Passionate Jonah are accepting who he is.
0: When you're describing the scene, it actually reminds me of the way that the Wes Anderson movie from last year, The French Dispatch Ends, there's an aging chef character who's right at the end, you know, I, I, I tasted a new flavor. I'd never tasted that before. And it's just kind of, again, it's an aging artist kind of reflecting on the things an aging man worries about, the things an aging creative person worries about. And then, you know, he eats a purple plastic bar and is like, whoa, it's a new experience. So I, I gave this movie a negative rating in spite of how interesting I think it is because I think it's just kind of like drab. Cosmopolis, which I've brought up a couple times, is similar, but I think that's a little bit tighter and funnier than this is. Mm-hmm. Although the best parts of this are fucking funny. <laughs> this is
1: pretty, it's a pretty funny movie, honestly. Where, like a sicko.
0: The scene where she kills her kid is fucking hilarious. Like I've, <laughs> I have never seen a funnier child murder except possibly in John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. <laughs> it's like, because it was just so jarring. I think Kristen Stewart obviously gets my nod as the other character. There's the scene where Saul comes and meets her in the office. She's like chasing him around, basically. Yeah. And she's like doing it under totally false pretenses of talking about Whippet, talking about whatever. But she's just like really, really, really attracted to him, like doing like a Pepe Le Pew routine. And the cats going around the circle like a fucking Looney (laughs) Tune.
1: I mean, I gave this a very positive rating. It's currently my number free for the year overall. Honestly, if they wanted to make more of this, I want to see more.
0: I think that was a sort of takeaway that I had about it was that there's a lot of interesting ideas here. I think that I liked it more upon leaving the theater than I did maybe while I was watching it, just because that gave you sort of the space to it's a little bit of like a build your own thematic toolkit. It doesn't necessarily put all the pieces together for you. You're getting this guy going through this event. Everything has to be sort of assembled in your head. I think that it would have been really interesting to see like a television series version of this where it could be episodes long just because the world that he created is quite interesting. There's a lot of characters in it. We're just talking about its perspectives. So like more characters, more perspective. Give me the guy that thinks that Ear Man is inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) That guy exists.
1: Yeah. I mean, even in the first scene alone where the sun is ticking up, sand at a beach and you see this gigantic cruise liner like half sunken in the background that just got my brain going i wanted to know okay what happened here
0: and it's not something that the movie touches again after that yeah it's just there Saul and Caprice have a fairly above-the-level surgery routine. But the rule seems to be that as long as it's consensual, anybody can do surgery on anybody. And so you'll yeah. see people like fucking cutting open other people's calves in the middle of alleyways and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's they'll a certain
1: be sitting there cutting themselves.
0: And there's a certain degree of you just will never know why that was happening in the background there, which is pretty classic sci-fi filmmaking storytelling, I think, of yeah. Blade Runner as being prime example of it's just a movie of environmental storytelling there's a mystery it barely matters i don't love the way that this looks i really don't i wanted to be in support because i like digital cinematography and i like to be you know Mm -hmm. supportive and positive but i just i I cannot say that i really dug this i think it has an aesthetic with the production design with vigo's fucking hood there are things about it but it's just overall i just kind of found it a little drab and a little bit sluggish
1: I can see the argument for that. Personally, I did not mind the lackadaisical pace. I
0: guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think in my head that day, I saw that movie, and I had a ticket to go see Goodfellas after. <laughs> and I was—I don't know, maybe I was just like, "Just all right, let's come on. I want to go. I want to go see Ray Liotta." <laughs> no, oh, it's it's a... fucking great to have Cronenberg back at a movie theater, just to be able to go see a Cronenberg in the theaters. Right. And a it's just, wide release of all yeah. times with, with human beings, with the public, how many people walked out for you?
1: Uh, a good couple. Um, yeah. A <laughs> couple of people only after the murder of the child.
0: though. When you had texted me, I was like, it must've been because the fucking mom <laughs> fucking yep. murders the kid in the first five minutes.
1: And if you're still there after that, then you're in for the long haul.
0: Perfect. Sunday thought, morning uh, film. Uh,
1: Perfect. Just absolutely go eat brunch afterwards and,
0: you know,
1: (laughs) scare whoever you're eating brunch with afterwards and start like munching on your fork.
0: (laughs) Massaging your throat. It's a movie about forbidden snacks. I think it's like David Cronenberg Saw the Tide Pods jokes (laughs) from 2014 or whatever, whenever that was.
1: God bless them.
0: And he was like, the damn kids are eating plastic. He wrote a movie about it.
1: I mean, shit, I might not be able to afford anything else besides plastic soon if inflation keeps up like
0: this. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really interesting part of the movie. It's like people are really honing in on it, I think, because it's a little funny to be like microplastics, ha ha ha. But I think that's one of the parts of the movie that I enjoy. That little plot line about the dad and the autopsy and stuff feels like something that could have been explored in greater depth. But I enjoy that it uses things like plastics, like global warming, just to give you this tenor of the conditional future that it's selling you where it's like, we are talking about those things right now in our real world at this time. And thus, it just makes the connection to the future feel like it is about the anxieties of now, which is just like, I don't know, it's just like the fundamental science fiction, I guess, but it's done in a way that's
1: it grounds the time that we live in now. And you could see how things would evolve this way.
0: Which then becomes the launching off point of all these different thematic avenues that the movie explores. I think maybe set it with the state organizations trying to control people. There's a lot of that feels really timely with the different legislation coming out, like anti-trans legislation in the state of Texas or Roe v. Wade court decisions. These deeply fucking evil lunatic where they're trying to control people's bodies what people can do with their bodies there's an essential kind of transness to this i am sure that there are like already a hundred brilliant essays about how fucking trans this movie is
1: oh yeah 100
0: when you make video drone for the rest of your career people are going to be like this is a trans movie <laughs> no matter what you make
1: <laughs> and i wonder if james wood has ever stopped to think about that in his entire life
0: i don't think that anybody in 1983 knew what video drum was about have you ever seen like the pictures of the cards that the audience wrote? where They're just like, yeah, shit.
1: they were like, girl, what the fuck is this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Had a pussy in his chest and he put a videotape in it and then he got a gun out of it.
1: And you know what? The cinema Score cards for this probably said the same thing. But twenty we down <laughs> the line, all our kids are going to love it. So
0: When they're all eating plastic in 30 years as their main course, they're going to be like, damn, how did he know? The capstone was you and I watched To Die For and then. David Cronenberg shows up as an actor in that movie.
1: Everything ties together.
0: Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, AMC, David Cronenberg.
1: We come to this place to watch my ex-husband convince 50-year-olds to come back to movie theaters.
0: There's like a certain special sauce to watching the Nicole Kidman ad play before a Tom Cruise film, I have to say. After the mission, there's like a Mission Impossible advertisement. Here's Nicole, here's Tom.
1: We need to edit that trailer to include a little footage from either top gun maverick or from eyes wide shot
0: <laughs> i always think about whenever she's like somehow heartbreak feels good in a place like this i always think about the crying scene from magnolia <laughs> just tom you know, There's merchandise down
1: so that commercial now i almost bought a coffee mug that has somehow our a feels like this <laughs> on it
0: the, the best thing that I've learned about the Nicole Kidman ad is that it was directed by the Cronenweth brothers, the two sons of Jordan Cronenweth, director of photography of Blade Runner, Stop oh. Sense, Altered States. Yeah. But the son is shot a bunch of David Fincher movies, shot like The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, Social Network, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So pretty cool. That's like, that's like my favorite Nicole Kidman ad factoid. They got to take the Jurassic World out of that. That's the worst part. She's like, they take us somewhere we've never been before. It's like the Jurassic World gate. I'm like, fuck that. You got to do something better than the Jurassic. This is literally a redo of Jurassic Park. How
1: many times have we been here already? Many. Too many. And we're going to be there for at least one more round.
0: I feel like I got to wait until all the crowds stop seeing Jurassic World before I go see it.
1: Based off of the public reactions, you may not have to wait that long. Basically, if you told me that a Jurassic Park movie was going to open up to less than Top Gun, I would have called you crazy. But that's the future we live in.
0: Tom Cruise is saving the movies that Chris Pratt is desperately trying to kill. Has any movie couple ever had less chemistry than Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard? I don't think so. Were
1: they even a couple?
0: I don't know. They're like, (laughs) if they are, you wouldn't know. uh, I hope that Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum get paid a lot of money appearing sure in that I film i hope they had a good time i hope i hope someone with some talent calls sam Neil. we miss you sam i don't want to see you doing this to yourself
1: jane pick up the phone please all
0: right i think that just about wraps us any other thoughts
1: go watch top gun maverick on the biggest screen possible that's right go see crimes of the future in theaters if you can if you can't it's dropping on vod june 21st
0: yeah make sure that you maybe bring somebody with to, to talk about all the weird shit that happens because it's a movie that will make you want to talk about it afterwards yeah. because of I how much sure is
1: going on. Also laugh at it a little bit.
0: Yeah. That's, that's or someone who you can laugh at may they get disgusted by it. <laughs> all right. Cole, this has been fun. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me on. Raise your head, look into my wishful